Good evening. My name is Mike Murley, and welcome to WPKN's Mic Check, coming to you here on WPKN every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I host every third and fifth Sunday of this program, and it is an honor for me to do so. And I want to say welcome to everyone listening at 89.5 FM on your radio dial, and welcome to everyone streaming live or tuning into our podcast at WPKN.org. Each week on Mic Check, one of our hosts examines global, national, and regional issues and their effect on our local community. Just as the phrase Mic Check was used to mobilize people to create a human microphone during the Occupy movement and others, this weekly program seeks to amplify our community's many voices and bring them to the airwaves. Mic Check is followed on WPKN at 6 p.m. by another public affairs program, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you so much for tuning in and for joining me tonight. I'm very excited to have what I feel is an important conversation, which I also had one year ago tomorrow. And and that topic or that conversation is about something that actually happened 10 years ago tomorrow. So tomorrow actually marks 10 years since authoritarian dictator Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons to kill over 1,400 Syrians, including many children, coinciding with in-person events happening tomorrow in New York City, Washington, D.C., and other places around the U.S. and all over the world. Connecticut-based Syrian activists will be holding a rally at 12 p.m. or 12 noon in Hartford at 1 Market Street, which is near the old State House building, in honor of the victims of the 2013 Ghouta massacre. To speak on this somber anniversary, I am grateful and honored to be joined once again here on Mic Check by Stanley Heller, Administrator for Promoting Enduring Peace. Stanley is also involved with the organization Middle East Crisis Committee and he produces and hosts the local weekly social justice video news program, The Struggle. Good evening, Stan. Welcome back to Mike Check. Good evening, Mike. Thank you for inviting me. It is a pleasure, as always, Stan, to be in conversation with you about these important topics. And I, I appreciate all the, the persistent work that you've been doing for so long here in Connecticut to raise awareness of issues and of, of struggles and topics like this one that don't get enough attention and that unfortunately that people aren't talking about enough and also that so many people are not aware of and are not familiar with. And so this is a very somber anniversary that we're discussing and there's going to be these rallies tomorrow. I was wondering if you could give a, a first brief overview of the Syrian conflict, beginning with the start of the uprising against the Bashar al-Assad regime? Sure. Well, first, understand that Syria has been a family dictatorship uh, since 1971. In 50 years, they've only had two leaders, uh, Bashar al-Assad and his father. A total police state, no freedom for political parties, uh, 
you know, the press, any of that kind of stuff. And in 1982, there was a Islamist uprising put down brutally. Some say 10,000 people were killed. Uh, Bashar, the the younger Assad, comes in in 2000. Oh, two, two, I think. And uh, there had there were some hopes in the beginning, but uh, it didn't uh, amount to anything. In 2011, when there were a lot of uprising in the in the Arab world, um, for a while uh, Syria was very quiet. But some of the uh, you know young people, teenagers, were writing some of the slogans that they would see. Other people in Egypt and other places like Tunisia were putting on walls and so on. And in Dera, uh, in particular, a couple kids uh, wrote some slogans on the wall, and the police got them and uh, just uh, tortured them and killed one of them, uh, sent their bodies back to their family, and it, it was just awful. And so there were demonstrations. And from the start, uh, Assad and his people decided to, uh, you know, put it down as violently, you know, without any kind of limits. So, they, you know, they were shooting with live ammunition virtually from the start. And um, 2011, uh, by the summer, uh, people defended themselves, you know, uh, deserters from the army took their weapons. Uh, some got them from... Uh, outside of Syria, uh, some other Arab countries uh, supported them for a while, and so you had some, uh, you know, violent uh, defense too. Uh, so this this was in uh, in 2011. So it it went on, um, and it looked like the people were going to win in 2015, uh, and then Russia got involved and uh, just and in its own bombers. I mean, it had supported Assad uh, for many years, but they were directly using Russian airplanes to uh, um, bomb the people, and uh, they and their uh, Iranian allies uh, turned the tide. Uh, And now there's only one part of Syria in the northwest. They call it Idlib. That's free of Assad control. And that's uh, the the sad story of the last, uh, what is it, uh, 12 years. Thank you for sharing all that important history and context, Stan. And especially since I know it's difficult to to boil so much and so many layers down in just a couple minutes like that. But uh, thank you for sharing all that. And I was wondering if you could also briefly speak as well about... Uh, Palestinians who are 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 and have been living in Syria, how they've been affected by the situation in terms of the the you know the crushing of the revolution by the Assad regime in conjunction with with the Russian and Iranian regimes, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 you know militarily and and just yeah just how uh, you know where Palestinians actually fit into this situation as well when it comes to Syria? Yeah, people you don't think they, they're related, that, you know, there's the Palestinian situation, there's the Syrian problems, but they're actually related in a, in a very direct way because, uh, um, you know, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians fled 
in 48 and a lesser amount in 67 and went into Syria. And um, they were they were really welcomed by the people. I'm not going to give credit to the governments, but the people of Syria really uh, opened their hearts to them. And uh, various refugee camps were uh, founded. The biggest one was in a, I guess it's a suburb or adjacent to Damascus. It's a place called Yarmouk. And it had several hundred uh, Palestinians living there and hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands of others. I think it was six or 800,000 by 2011 uh, living in what they kept calling a camp. I mean, it wasn't uh, tents anymore, but it was, uh, uh, you know, concrete structures, whatever they could uh, scrounge and uh, very crowded together. But they had a community there and it was a kind of intellectual capital of Palestinians in exile. Uh, for a while, they tried to stay out of the, the fight, you know, the, uh, the uprising. Um, the Syrian government had always paid, paid lip service to uh, Palestinian rights, though they didn't do much. Uh, the border between Syria and, uh, and Israel had been uh, the quietest in the Arab world, even though uh, a whole chunk of uh, Syria called the Golan Heights was occupied by Israel in 67. Uh, but uh, as the uh, as 2011 continued, um, Palestinians in Syria uh, who had tried to stay neutral, uh, you know, sort of broke out of that mold, partly because they were being ordered about by one or more Palestinian groups were virtually servants of the regime. And uh, long story short, uh, as time went by, uh, more and more independence uh, was shown in Yarmouk. And the regime put uh, the whole camp in isolation. They put the Palestinian camp under siege. And, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of complications. You know, we didn't talk about ISIS. ISIS uh, and Al-Qaeda come into Syria in, uh, let's say, 2014, and whatever help the uh, U.S. was giving at that point, uh, they then said, you know, all we're concerned about is, is the threat of ISIS. Uh, so they get all involved in this. But the, the main story is that uh, Assad forces surround the, uh, the camp, put it under siege for years. There was a classic photo of an immense crowd of people in, in Yarmouk waiting to get some kind of supplies. I forget what year that was, maybe 2014 or 2015. It was really pre pretty dreadful. And uh, the siege became attacks, and eventually the whole place was uh, overrun, and there was basically no one in, in Yarmouk camp. Um, so that's, uh, you know, another aspect of this whole thing. And Palestinians there were uh, thrown, or, or I should say, ran away for an, another refugee status. Um, and I myself learned about all, about Syria, uh, the way it really was from a, a Palestinian who was born in Damascus, lived in Yarmouk. Um, and learned really about all the various levels of things going on there. 
So uh, the Palestinian Syrians, as they sometimes call themselves, uh, they're, they're all involved in the situation. Thank you for that, Stan. And yeah, and what a, what a horrible situation it is in terms of the, the violence when it comes to the, the situation in Syria over the past 12 plus years. But it is uh, definitely no exaggeration to say that, that the regime has been particularly brutal and oppressive, the Assad regime. So tomorrow marks 10 years since mm-hmm. the Ghouta massacre taking place. Can you describe what happened that day and and in that incident, Stan? Well, Ghouta, as I understand it, is a suburb of uh, Damascus, and it uh, had been liberated, basically. And the Assad uh, regime used any kind of weapon it could, and rockets against its own people, as you sometimes hear that phrase, uh, and and chemicals too. There were small chemical attacks that had been going on, and the UN uh, actually had been called in to investigate some of them. And then on that day, uh, and I know a little bit about it uh, from someone who was there, a man named Danny Capani, who was in a park called Moadamia. And he describes how uh, you know, he wakes up and they're screaming and they run and and they see uh, you know people foaming at the mouth and uh, children just bodies everywhere. They don't know what happened. One of the things, uh, one of the problems was that uh, when you uh, up until that time, the safest place to be was down in the basement. You know, if the rockets are coming in, they're blowing up buildings, then, you know, the safety was down below, except with sarin gas, it's heavier than air, and so it would go right down into the bottom. And uh, you had these awful pictures of, uh, you know, row upon row of, uh, of little children just without laying there, without any obvious uh, injury. But uh, you know, pictures of of their bodies, and just an extraordinary number of people, fourteen hundred uh, civilians, all in one day, in in this place called Guta. Um, by the way, you can listen to that. Uh, I did an interview with Capani three years later, uh, but uh, the part that talks about the uh, the poison gas massacre. In Moadamia, uh, I excerpted and stuck it on the uh, on the struggle. Uh, uh, if you'll be able to see it this week on TSVN, the struggle video news. So that's that's what happened. Uh, and for at the beginning, there was you know some doubt, counter charges. Oh, it's a fake incident. The the, um, the, the rebels did it to themselves. You know, they would kill a thousand of themselves. They would kill their own children, right? For what reason? Oh, to get sympathy. Uh, but this is this charge has been said again and again, even today. And uh, you know, the crazy thing is that they do this genius move to uh, kill their own children to get sympathy or to get U.S. support, 
How come they never used these weapons they supposedly had against uh, Assad or against uh, anybody, anybody else? I mean, the whole thing is just a tissue of lies, but that is what happened. And, uh, you know, the truth came out uh, within a, a month or so. People really understood what had happened. And there were more chemical attacks uh, in years in uh, different places in, in Syria. Nothing on this scale, but... I mean, it was one in, uh, I think, Sarin again a couple of years later in Kanchakun and then again in Guta but with chlorine, 2018. A really bad business. Thank you for, for sharing that, Stan, and, and for for talking about the, the history and, and what took place and also the, you know, hinting at the misinformation that unfortunately is is happening and has been happening for many years. This is something that very much connects to our local communities here in Connecticut in a very direct way because we have we have Syrian immigrants and refugees who, living here in Connecticut and there was actually mm-hmm. several years ago there was a, you know a, a very big campaign to welcome Syrian refugees into not just the United States on the whole but also here in Connecticut with groups like Iris in New Haven and Siri in Bridgeport, which used to be known as ICON, which does similar work to Iris. And so we have Syrian communities and families living here in Connecticut, who most of whom, if not all of whom, still have loved ones, still have family and friends and many, many people that they care deeply about and that they are constantly thinking about and worrying about and in touch with living in Syria. And so this is very much a, a local, even though it's international, it's also very, very local. And so that being said, tomorrow there is going to be a rally at 12 o'clock noon near the old state house at 1 Market Street in Hartford. And I was wondering if you could talk, Stan, first about what groups, what folks put together this rally and, and the, the motivation it. I know it's, it's obviously the 10-year anniversary and that there will be mm-hmm. events happening in other places as well uh, to mark this, this, this anniversary, this very somber anniversary. And I was also wondering if you could then talk about the, the importance as well of remembering the, the events that took place 10 years ago and, and what's going to be happening at the rally tomorrow. Sure. So uh, there's the Syrian American Council that's been active uh, in many places in the United States and I assume in Europe. And um, there is the Promoting Enduring Peace and also the Middle East Crisis Committee. Basically, those three groups are doing it. And uh, it it wants to remember what happened and there'll be some descriptions of, uh, of what people saw, what survivors saw that day. And so we... We want to talk about, uh, you know, the need to not excuse what Assad has done. I mean, a lot of the Arab uh, monarchies have made their peace uh, from Saudi Arabia to UAE to others. They're they're making their peace with Assad, giving them a big hug, bringing them back to the, uh, I think it's called the Arab League. Um, these Syrians want uh, justice. Uh, for the people killed and then injured. I mean, there were thousands 
you know, there was lots of people who survived, but you can imagine what the, the poison did to their lungs and so on. Um, so that's that's one of the big demands uh, of you know the rally that there be justice, there be uh, consequences for people involved. Second is the more present day things. I mentioned Idlib, which is this uh, one section which uh, I don't know maybe uh, four million people are living in that is not ruled over by Assad, and it. Uh, it desperately needs aid. It, it gets uh, a little bit of aid. And uh, the Russians sort of have this veto in, in that um, they they have at the U.N. They've said, well, you know, we're not going to allow four paths in. We'll, we'll allow one. And then something happened. They didn't they shut it down completely. I mean, it's just awful. And this is a place that suffered the... Uh, damage earlier this year with the earthquake damage and and many, many people got killed. So that's a second demand. Just open the routes into into Idlib, defy Putin and Assad. And why does the U.N. have to ask their permission to to help people? There's numerous Security Council resolutions that say that these people have a right to get aid. And the third has to do with prisoners. Uh, One of the banners we've been carrying around is specific uh, about the Alabasi family. Six people in one family, uh, this woman who was a chess champion and a dentist, <laughs> an interesting combination. And uh, one day in t- uh, 2013, say, uh, before this uh, massacre, I believe, Assad forces just uh, swept up the whole family. They have not been seen since. And then there's an American named Majd Kamalmas in 2017. He's a psych- psychotherapist who's done a lot of work helping refugees. He went over to uh, Syria and went to a checkpoint. They picked him up, and that was the end. We have not heard of him in six years. Um, so, so it's calling for freedom for these people if they're alive, or the counting what happened. And for the, the, the thousand prisoners, uh, maybe 10,000, I've seen estimates up to 140,000. Nobody knows. People are just swept up, whether they've said anything or just take people and, you know, you could steal money from them or you can extort money from the families if you have the, the, the per, their loved one as a prisoner uh, or, you know, just to terrorize the whole population. So, uh, so that uh, that also is going to be. Uh, those are the main things, um, and we've also talked about other things. One which uh, it looks like there's been success. There's this little area called Rukban, uh, right on the border with uh, Iraq and Jordan, which uh, people ran to that section. It was an area that the U.S had what they called a no-confliction zone. Uh, There was, at one point, I think as many as 40,000 people there, uh, and now maybe 3,000. Very harsh conditions. But the the United States is actually bringing in supplies. Just started maybe two months ago, which is enormous. I mean, other things could be done, like the bombings, the Russian and uh, Assad bombings continue. 
So the U.S., which certainly monitors the situation with this radar, could let the people know. You know, there's measures like that that we at Promoting Enduring Peace have uh, been advocating. So uh, all these things will be talked about. We've got banners. People can look at our site, uh, pepeace.org, and uh, see pictures of the banners and, and so on. I hope people can bring their own banners. And uh, also we help besides people who serve sympathize with Syrians, we hope others who are uh, in a a similar kind of situations, one can think the Ukrainians, uh, who are uh, undergoing a a vicious attack by uh, Putin's forces, Uh, some of them will come, I'm going to bring a Ukrainian flag, hope others will attend, and Palestinians, because they've been a a victim of uh, of Assad in in Syria. So we we hope to get a a good number of people there to remember what happened 10 years ago and to uh, support Syrians today. Thank you so much for sharing all that, Stan, and for naming those connections across uh, international struggles, you know, connecting Syria and, and Ukraine in that way. I think that's very, very important. We have this picture on our current TV show, I don't know when it was done, but some Syrians made the words truth in three dimensions. So, you know, one person held a T and another person held an R, and they held it across the street from the Russian consulate in New York City. And so anybody from the consulate looking out would see the letters uh, spelled out there, and it made a nice picture. And that was Syrian activists, you said? Yeah, yeah, it was Syrian activists. It may have been on a prior uh, twenty uh, first uh, of August to remember what had happened in Ghouta. Well, thank you so much, Stan. And you know, I, I uh, we have just a a very little bit left here, and and I want you to have the last word. So websites, if you could, thestruggle dot org, thestrugglevideo dot org, org countervortex.org that Bill Weinberg does, humusforthought.com, Joey Ayub, newlinesmag.com, and lastly, whitehelmets.org, all good sources of information.